Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Taking our Bibles this evening and turning to the book of Romans, the book of Romans, the 14th chapter, Romans chapter 14, a topic that some have considered before and others it may be new for. I shared this same theme back several years ago, and I thought I'd share it again this evening. After all, when we come to talk about Christmas, all kinds of thoughts and emotions of nostalgia tend to creep in. But also, when we start to talk about Christmas, there are some people who have questions about the very celebration of Christmas. Uh, I've had emails about this topic, not recently, uh, but I've had in the past many people who have asked me questions as a pastor. So what do we think about celebrating Christmas, and especially celebrating Christmas on the 25th of December? Let's talk about that this evening. If you've opened your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, we read beginning in verse 1, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Doubtful disputations, dialogue, debate, they swirl around about us. The Bible always gives caution on the topic of the debates. We need to know where we stand theologically, but we also need to be cautious when it comes to debating on such matters. When you read the pastoral epistles, you will over and again see that theme developed to both Timothy and Titus. Here, those that are weak are to be received in the church, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak eats herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he should be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share in this consideration this evening. I pray that some of the thoughts that are shared will be helpful, that you'd give to us as a church family unity on a theme that in some places has caused, caused disunity. I pray that you would help us together to appreciate the blessings that we have in sharing the gospel as we come into the Christmas season, and we'll thank you for it, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Everything from Santa Claus to Christmas trees to the giving of gifts, uh, these various topics and more have been the cause of more than a few debates. After all, there will be those who will say, don't you realize that these various customs have pagan roots? They're established in paganism, the celebration of pagan holidays in some Christians' minds. I've known of families that have become divided on this topic. I've known of churches that have debated this topic and caused many people to be very hurt and sometimes very confused. So the thoughts that I'm about to share this evening are shared not to be critical, but in order, I trust, to exercise biblical wisdom in a topic that can sometimes cause agitation. We start by looking at some of the arguments that are considered when people say, do we really think it's wise for us to celebrate 
Christmas. People will talk about Christmas trees and ornaments, and some will use the word abomination. And usually when people, especially with regard to Christmas trees, will talk about Christmas trees being an abomination, they go to the book of Jeremiah chapter 10. So let's turn there, Jeremiah chapter 10, and you can see very quickly why people can be concerned when you look at Jeremiah chapter 10. And you begin your reading in verse 1. Hear ye the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 10 and verse 1, which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. One cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers, that it move not. And they that are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it to them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, for thou art great, and thy name is great in might. See there? Cutting down a tree and bringing it in and putting ornaments on it, gold and silver. Uh, this can be a problem. And often people will run to Jeremiah chapter 10. But as they run there, they need to be reminded that there was a purpose for these who are making from the forest with the workmen of the hands and the workmen with axe and decking it with silver. And what's the purpose? They're believing these trees are gods. This is idol worship. Verse 5, he says, they are upright as the palm tree, but they speak not. They must needs be born. This is the tree that has been cut out of the forest because they cannot go. Don't be afraid of them. They cannot do evil. Neither also it is in them to do good. In fact, if you take your Bible and go to the book of Isaiah chapter 44, you'll see that Isaiah the prophet, perhaps a bit more clearly, speaks with regard to this, this idol work. Isaiah chapter 44. And I trust that most people would have wisdom to say, the Christmas tree in the home, it's not an object of our prayers. It's not considered to be an idol. It's a seasonal thing. It's not there on a permanent basis to be an idol in anyone's home. But Isaiah chapter 44, similarly, Isaiah speaks about the matter of the pagan idols and their worship of what they've cut out of the forest. In verse 9, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity and their delectable things shall not profit they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. For who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed and the workmen that are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashions it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out his rule and marketh it with a line. He fits it with planes. He marks it with a compass. He makes it with a figure, like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth, it, he heweth him down cedars and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants an ash and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn. For he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread, yea, he maketh a god and worships it, and makes it a graven image and falls down thereto. He burns part thereof in the fire, and part thereof he eats flesh. 
He roasteth, roast, and he's satisfied. He warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the residue thereof, he makes a god. Even his graven image, he falleth down unto it and worships it and prayeth unto it and says, deliver me, for thou art God. So when we talk about a tree being cut down from Jeremiah, we need to realize the purpose of that tree being cut down in Jeremiah. That tree is being cut down in Jeremiah, just like in Isaiah, to be made into an idol. Those who would make such an argument need to be careful to make an argument that, see, Jeremiah talks about cutting down a tree and you're doing the very same thing. When we make that kind of a parallel argument, we enter into some dangerous ground. Are we saying that any time a plant is being grown in a home, we're in violation of Jeremiah 14, or Jeremiah 10, rather? If we say that any time someone builds a statue or has a statue made of an animal or a person, that statue is wrong? Now, wars have been fought over themes like this. You have the whole iconoclastic battle between uh, the Byzantines and the Romans over are we going to be able to put... um, pictures and statues in our worship places. Well, such parallel arguments can become quite precarious because while it sounds good to apply Jeremiah to a Christmas tree, it could really be applied to any type of a tree that's brought into a home or any type of plant that's brought into a home and we'd be asking the same uh, questions. Some people say, well, it's interesting to note when it comes to Christmas trees that Boniface, an 8th century English missionary to Germany, brought evergreens into Christianity. That Boniface recognized that the Germans were worshiping oak trees, and so in order to teach, it's kind of like the St. Patrick stories of teaching the Trinity with you know, a, a clover leaf, that Boniface said, no, 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 God's not like an oak tree, God's more like an evergreen. And so People will trace back to Boniface the whole idea of a Christmas tree full of life and even uh, representation of God's eternality. I'm not sure about all that. I'll just throw it out there for you to ponder. Uh, When you've not gone to original sources, it's hard to make strong arguments, but the evergreen became a symbol of conversion and protest, according to the people that hold to the Boniface, where did the Christmas tree come from? Well, From Boniface, they say, and this is why they say it, in order to teach people in Germany uh, who were actually worshiping and making deity out of oak trees. There are all kinds of interesting things that have happened in the world over the years. The longer you live, the more interesting things happen. When I was in southern India, the fastest spoken language on the planet, they say, is the Malayalam language of the Carolans in southern India. When the missionaries went to Kerala, they got to Psalm 23 and trying to put together a Bible in the Malayalam language and knowing that the Carolans didn't know what a shepherd is, when they got to the 23rd Psalm, they scratched their heads and said, well, they're not going to know what a shepherd is. So they actually translated into the Malayalam this way, the Lord is my coconut tree, I shall not want. So what? Yeah, they did that. Because a coconut tree is always bearing fruit, you can have a fire from it, you can drink from it, you can have milk from it, you can build your house from it. It's like an all-supplying, it's always there. Um, not a good idea. That's, that's taking translation 
well beyond where you want to go. Did Boniface actually make an evergreen into a symbol of eternal life? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. Some people will say, well, now wait a minute. When we come to the topic of Christmas, there are those who are deliberately trying to remove Christ from Christmas. For instance, uh, we can be offended by the Xmas signs, and I know some were probably already offended when they saw this PowerPoint, Pastor Phelps. Uh, you shouldn't put X up there. And Xmas may indeed be a deliberate attempt to remove Christ from Christmas. There are those who distribute leaflets urging people to keep Christ in Christmas, and I'm not advocating for Xmas, but I do know this, that I do know that when you come to the Greek language and you want to spell Christ, the first letter in the Greek language looks like an X. Uh, the letter that begins that phrase of Messiah in Greek is indeed a letter like an X. Now, I'm not advocating for putting up Xmas signs in front of our church or anywhere, but I can understand how people could have gotten in the pattern of doing that. If you've studied languages, they become kind of like shorthand. Uh, after studying a little while, I found myself when I take notes in Bible classes, uh, there's the, the first letter in God in the Greek language is a theos, and so it's like a circle with a line through it. And after a while, I, I just didn't write God anymore. I just put a circle with a line through it, and I knew that's God. And the, the, there's a preposition in Greek that's dia, which means through. And instead of writing through, I just put the hook of a D from the Greek language, and you just move on. I can see where that could have happened. Are we advocating for that? No. But be careful. There may be an explanation beyond trying to take Christ out of Christmas. Here's one that's interesting. When it comes to the topic of Christmas, a lot of people will say, well, December 25th, that's not the Lord's birthday. After all, I looked it up today, in Israel, in Jerusalem today, I think the high is going to be in the low 50s, and it's going to go down into the 40s tonight. It's December. By the time you get into uh, January and February, and even in December, you can have some cooler weather and even get snow in and around Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is just five miles from Jerusalem. And so people will say, they wouldn't have been in the fields. I mean, come on. You don't put the shepherds out in the fields when it's 45 degrees in um, Bethlehem in December. So obviously it couldn't have been uh, December 25th. So opponents of Christmas celebrations argue that Constantine actually replaced the annual December worship of the return of the sun and the sun god Tammuz, and that it was Constantine who did this. Lots of different names for lots of different gods, but obviously there was a, a god tradition in the Greek and the Roman times it's called the Mithrian tradition, that this virgin-born God was raised by wolves. You can't make this stuff up. When was he born? The 25th of December. True. This was truly a tradition at the time. And so there are many who will make much of that and say Constantine just substituted a date. But if you take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, years ago an author by the name of John Stormer published an interesting article on the theme, the date of the birth of Christ. And he traces his arguments from where we're going tonight to the Gospel of Luke. And I know some are way better on chronology than I am, so I'm just going to share with you John Stormer's thoughts on the dating of the birth of Christ. I found them interesting. 
In Luke 1 and verse 5, we read, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. What's this course of Abiah? Well, we know that Zacharias was a priest, right? And back in 1 Chronicles 24, in the first 10 verses of 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David, the king, in preparation for the building of the temple, set the priesthood in various courses. There were 24 named courses. So 24 different groups of priests. And these groups of priests had specific times when they were to be serving in the temple. The course, the group under the name of Abiah, his family name, would have served in Israel's eighth month. The eighth month in Israel would be our October. Our October. And so when we look at what's happening, verse 8 says, And it came to pass that while he executed, this is Zacharias, who's after the course of Abias, who would have been exercising his priestly work in October, while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. Now there's the second time he makes reference to this course. Well, while he was doing that, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense. And you remember the story, how he goes in and he's burning incense and the angel of the Lord comes and Zacharias saw him in verse 12 and was troubled. And the angel said to him, fear not, Zacharias, thy prayer is heard and thy wife Elizabeth, note the words, shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John and thou shalt have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. So sometime in the month of October, Zacharias is having a conversation in the temple with an angel. And the angel is saying to Zacharias, you've been praying for a baby for a long time and God's going to hear that prayer. When you go to verse 23 of this same chapter, it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Did she conceive before those days or after those days? after. So sometime after he comes back from the temple, the Lord allows her to conceive this child of promise and hid herself five months. It's interesting that the Gospel of Luke, and Luke being a medical doctor and a very detailed historian, he's entering details into this text that he wants us to see, not just to read by. Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, says Elizabeth. As we follow this along, The Bible tells us she hid herself for five months in verse 24. And then in the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin in a sixth month of what? Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel was sent to Galilee, to Nazareth, to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, and the Lord is with thee. Blessed be thou among women. Most know the phrase. The sixth month of Elizabeth's conception would be between March 15 and April 15. That's six months from mid-October. Okay, so we're talking somewhere in March to April. And if the angel came to Mary... On the 1st of April, and the normal gestation of a woman with child is 270 days, then when would the Lord be born? 
sometime long around December. Oh, wait a minute, time out. The shepherds were out in the fields. It's cold out there. Well, that's another interesting thing to discover. Apparently, sheep are often born around the month of December, January. Why would the shepherds be in the fields abiding? Because sheep are being born. And you need to be there, just like any good animal husband would understand, to make sure that those births are safe and the flock continues to increase. So it would not be unusual for the shepherds to be in the fields in those particular months when the lambs are being born. And now we have some interesting biblical parallels to consider. Shepherds were indeed in the fields in December during the lambing process. And the one that we worship is the Lamb of God. No accident here though, folks. The biblical parallels are just amazing. Born in Bethlehem. Some have had the privilege of being in Bethlehem on the tour of Israel that we've taken and seen the place where the shepherds watched over the fields. Bethlehem was five miles from Jerusalem and those fields were the fields where the lambs were cared for that would be taken those five miles into Jerusalem and offered as sacrifices. Makes sense that the Lamb of God would be born there. And it also makes sense that the Lamb of God would be born when the other lambs were being born. And it also makes sense that the one who is the light of the world comes at the very darkest time, the winter solstice. So there's your argument for December 25th. You still with me? Okay. Uh, This is not something I'm going to preach this coming Sunday morning, I can guarantee you. Uh, if, If you're not familiar with this, Wednesday night, I have the privilege of sometimes going down onto the third shelf, all right? So the first shelf theology is the normative theologies, and we do that on Sunday morning. The second shelf, distinctive theologies, we do some more of that on Sunday night. Wednesday night, that's our opportunity for weird theologies, all right? (laughs) So if you're still with me, hang on. Uh, That is an interesting discussion on the topic of the dating And those who enjoy biblical chronology can enjoy that probably more than I. I find myself forgetting more than I remember after I do such a study. There are those, of course, who will say Christmas is a Catholic holiday. You can hear it in the name. Come on. It says Christmas, right? So do we want to do something that ties in with a Catholic holiday? And and on this one, we'd say be careful. Consistency is difficult to find in the dictionary. If you're looking for root words to abandon certain things, you're going to find yourself in trouble. For instance, Sunday, should we call it Sunday? After all, Sunday was named for the god Saturn. Easter, that's one that really can get my goat. Easter is named after the goddess Ashtaroth. In the Greek, the word for Easter is Pascha, Pascha. We get the word Passover. In the book of Acts, there's a time when the Greek word Pascha, in many Bible translations, is actually translated Easter. And that's a hard one. When you think, no, that, that would be better to translate with a good Bible word, Passover, than with a word that ties in with the goddess Astaroth. January comes from the goddess or the god Janus. And when we think about so many words that we don't know the origins for, uh, I grew up for a little while fishing along the Susquehanna River. I lived along the Merrimack River. 
there are so many nice Indian names that we become familiar with, and we don't always know the roots and the derivatives. And sometimes it's better for us not to ask. So when you want to make a case out of Christmas, yeah, that does seem quite apparent, but be careful. Um, but here's a question. I'm sorry, running late on putting up some of this PowerPoint. The question is, should we give gifts to one another? After all, it's the Lord's birthday. Should we give gifts to one another on a day that's not our birthday? Well, if you take your Bibles and go to the book of Esther and also Nehemiah, you'll find that people have had customs of giving gifts. One of the saddest customs of giving gifts that's reflected in the Bible is going to be um, when gifts are given in the tribulation time. In the tribulation time, they're going to give gifts when the two prophets of Revelation chapter 11 are killed. The world's going to be sending gifts to one another, the Bible says. I'm reading from Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, the Word of God says, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, Nehemiah and Ezra were involved in a great blessing of the reading of the law and the bringing of a revival to the children of Israel. And as that revival came, what was the commandment they were given? Go your way, eat and drink and send portions unto them whom they, who have nothing. Send gifts. From that, the Jews have long celebrated with regard to the rebuilding and reconsecrating of the temple, the Feast of Purim, and they actually send gifts to one another to rejoice over the time when the Lord allowed the temple to be restored. And so we have a long human tradition of people sending gifts for things other than their own personal birthdays. In fact, getting gifts for your own personal birthday, that's relatively modern. But gifts for other purposes, uh, that is not very modern. And then finally, there will be those who will say, you know, you only change one letter and you get Satan. So Santa, Satan, there's got to be something there. And I'll leave it to you to figure all that out. I was almost going to say something suicidal. Any questions? <laughs> but I decided better. Let me just say this. Before you say bah humbug to Christmas, there are many heathen traditions that we don't know about. When you have to unearth a heathen tradition in order to attack it, sometimes it's best to let it stay buried. You understand? So, when you have to unearth all this information from history that people are not aware of, they just simply for the last 40 years have gone along enjoying lighting a candle at Christmas and having a great time and celebrating the incarnation and singing carols. And you come in with, you know, well, let me show you this, and let me show you this, and let me show you this. You've got to be careful here. You're on some dangerous ground. Um, there are a lot of things that we don't know the history about. Now, I'm going to share just one tonight, all right? And I'll get myself in trouble on this one. But uh, that's all right. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. So, are you familiar with all the traditions that go along with our Western customs of marriage? So, in Rome, there are four kinds of marriages. There was the marriage of the slave, you and you, you're together. All right? There was the marriage that was civil. They received a document from a judge saying they're married. 
There was the marriage that was humble, where vows were actually said before one another, but then there were the aristocrats in Rome. Aristocratic marriages in Rome entailed the following. The Roman marriage ceremony, this is before the Roman Catholic Church, okay? We're going back a ways now. Roman marriage ceremony for the uppity-ups. The bride was escorted to the groom on the arm of her father. She wore a veil. Rings were exchanged. Where did we get these ideas? Well, you can trace that one right back historically. So wanting to be cautious, but still wanting to be clear, I've actually had conversations with people that are just really bent out of shape about Christmas. And I've actually been so audacious as to say, I would listen to you better if you took your wedding ring off. What? Well, if you knew the history of it, you might want to take it off. Not advocating that you take it off. Mine's still on. Amen. Very thankful for that. Not going anywhere with that. Praise the Lord. But be careful. So there are a lot of things that go back in heathen customs. It's appropriate to remember the birth of Jesus anytime. But I'm glad that God has given us, it seems, in the culture in which we are living, a time that we can teach and encourage our children to understand and think about the birth of the Lord, the incarnation. The virgin birth is a doctrine long attacked by Satan. And it's a doctrine that we as believers need to reiterate. First Timothy reminds us, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached unto the Gentiles, seen of angels, received up into glory. What a blessing for us to be able to consider the truth of the incarnation. A controversy over Christmas is contrary to the spirit of the passage that we started with this evening. We started with Romans chapter 14, and you recall that when we read from Romans chapter 14, it said something about days. It also said something about diets. He that's weak in the faith, verse 1, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. There you go. If you're on a meat-free diet, you're going to be weak. That's Bible, verse 2. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who's weak eats herbs. So enjoy that, but you're going to be weak. Let not him that, I better say, that's spiritual weakness, of course, right? Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. Let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Now he's putting up parameters. He says, you don't go around judging somebody else's servant. That's the master's job to judge that servant. One man esteemeth one day, verse 5, above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And here we find a good operational rule of peace. I have had many good, godly Christian friends who are not comfortable about Christmas traditions. I don't irritate them. I leave it alone. Well, then, Pastor Phelps, why are you talking about it tonight? Because you're really irritating me. <laughs> and the answer to that is because sometimes people can be so persuaded in their mind, obviously, it's a, it's a vast minority view that it opposes Christmas. And so I would apologize if I'm irritating unduly. But we want to have a church where we're at peace. And this is the kind of theme 
that can rob us of that. So, Christmas provides a great opportunity for education and evangelism. I trust the Lord will allow us to take advantage of that. Did you know that the number one opponent of Christmas traditions in America today is the Jehovah's Witness? If you want to get really good information about why we shouldn't celebrate Christmas, just get some Jehovah's Witness Watchtower stuff and you will find arguments that will keep you up at night. Uh, That's the number one opponent. And eliminating Christmas will impact your family. Oh, yeah, my kids like getting gifts. No, 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 hang on. What you typically find in a family where it's eliminated, children start off going, okay, uh, they're submissive. We can get along. We'll do without. It's fine, Mom. It's fine, Dad. And then they get smug. Not necessarily covetous or carnal. Smug. There's nothing more obnoxious than training a juvenile apologist I'll say that again. There's nothing more obnoxious than training a juvenile apologist. Now, it's well for our children to know where they stand and why they stand. But be careful. Sometimes parents stand back and think, oh, isn't that wonderful? My kid can argue with the best of them. One day they'll be arguing with you. The old timers used to say they ought to be seen and not heard. My experience has been young ones who grow up being taught so well, it seems, often come out not necessarily covetous and not necessarily bitter about not having, but often quite smug. Now, that's a crass generalization, and you can deposit it outside of the room if you want, but it's a warning for our parenting in any area where we as parents feel like we've got a lock on truth. Be careful how we share that with our children, lest they think that they have arrived. And I've seen that one happen with this discussion. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.